Hello and welcome to Play, Train, Grow. This is the first part of a two-part episode where we revisit the topic of bullying with my guest Jennifer Fraser, PhD. Jen's new book, The Bully Brain, is going to redefine the way we look at bullying. So in these two episodes, we're going to dive into the specifics. The first part, which you're about to hear, I asked four questions, which are all focused on the effects of bullying on the brain. The first question, we discuss what a bullied brain looks like versus an unbullied brain. The second question focuses on phrases and old school environments, which enable bullying. The third question, we unpick reasons for question two. Is it due to smacking? punishments of people at school where in the 60s, 70s, 80s, people were given the belt. And that may seem like a strange topic for a coaching podcast, but trust me, we're just unpicking a process. And then we finish off with negative self-talk and bullying yourself. Any feedback would be really appreciated. Please get in touch with us on Twitter. I'll leave Jen's Twitter handle in the episode as well. Thank you. And enjoy. Welcome to Play, Train, Grow. Once again, I'm very thankful for my returning guest and Jennifer Fraser. Jen, how are we today? Great, thank you. How are you, Johnny? I'm excited, as we've just been rambling on for about 40, <laughs> 40 minutes off camera. So, aim here today is to build a couple of episodes uh, on bullying, we're looking to, to build on the foundations from our previous episode and try and give some real tangible information that's usable for the, the everyday person. So I want to start off with asking, is there a difference between the bullied brain and an unbullied brain, or, or does this simplification even exist? Um. So... That's, it's a really, it's arguably the most important question. And the answer is one of the most powerful takeaways from the work that I've been learning and the research I've been reading. So 30 years ago in Romania, there, there was a great tragedy um, that you may know of where Ceausescu, the dictator, he wanted to increase the population. And so people were enforced to have multiple children and so many children that they couldn't afford even to raise them. So these children were put into orphanages and they were treated like, um, you know, they were given all the things they needed for their physical uh, survival. So they were fed and they had a crib and they were sheltered. And so the understanding was, well, if we, if we feed their bodies, then they will, they'll be fine. But they didn't know um, that the brain would not develop properly. So this allowed the neuroscientists uh, a terrible and yet powerful opportunity to look at the difference between a child who's raised in a family where they have constant social interaction with their parents, they have social interaction with other little ones, they are seen, they are cared for, they're sung to, they're held and loved, um, they're encouraged as they learn to walk and as they start to learn to speak and all these different things that we kind of take for granted. It's natural animal behavior. It's natural human behavior, us, us animals, to raise our children that way. 
Um, but these orphans did not get that attention. So you, they were neglected. They weren't hit or hurt or anything like that. They were just ignored. So you look at the brain of an ignored child, a baby growing up, and you look at a child that grew up in a, a loving family, a, an interactive family, and it's night and day. This brain, the Romanian orphan, is massively damaged, massively. And this brain is healthy and looks fabulous and is full of potential. That's the worst thing that any, anyone had ever seen from a neuroscience point of view. And the exciting and good news about that is some of those kids, if they were caught early enough with these incredibly damaged brains, with loving families that adopted them, and they were adopted early enough at sort of eight, nine months, they could reverse it. The brain has the most unbelievable capacity, just like our bodies, to heal and recover, even from something as devastating as that. Now, some of them couldn't. They, they struggled all their lives. But yeah, you can, you can see on a brain scan the difference, and it doesn't have to be severe like that. You can see on a brain scan a, a child that looks healthy and whole, and um, you can't see anything wrong with them at all. It, when you look at their brain, and this is done by all kinds of neuroscientific studies, you can see, oh, this kid has been physically abused, or this child has parents that are verbally abusive. This child has been bullied in the school, in the school system, really badly bullied. It absolutely shows up on the brain. One of the most powerful things I've ever heard Michael Merzenich say, who's, who's a, one of the world's leading neuroscientists, is that when you take a look at the brain, the brain does not lie. So you can cover up for whatever abuse you might have endured, but if you are if you have a brain scan, it shows. So what what comes to mind of you saying that is learned helplessness and labeling? I mean, could you give us a little bit on, on learned helplessness? Because I think the two of them match up really well. Um, absolutely. So learned helplessness, I, I I find one of the most powerful examples of learned helplessness. And people struggle to understand it, but it's actually a brain reaction to abuse. So if you, if you look at a woman who's in a domestic abuse situation or, or a man who's being harmed by their intimate partner, um, they will defend that person. They will cover up what they've done and they will return to them over and over again. Even though if you think about it, the brain's primary goal is to keep us alive. So you say to yourself, well, why does the brain of a domestic abuse victim keep going back to someone who's threatening their life? That doesn't make sense. And so this is where learned helplessness comes in. Another really great phrase for it that I find helpful is um, the perception of inescapability. So you, you do not believe you can escape. And there's, you know, with domestic abuse, there's all kinds of very complex factors, financial, social, children involved, all kinds of things, right? But so learned helplessness was originally an experiment done by a psychologist uh, quite, a, quite a long time ago, 30 years ago. And <clears throat> what he did was he was using, a, it's an awful experiment, using electric shocks with German shepherds. And um, what they learned was that the German shepherds, uh, they, they believed at a certain point that they, they just couldn't escape, that they were, they were helpless. They no longer could learn 
new ways to function or problem solve, how to escape or any of these things. So after a certain point, when they left the cage doors open and they said, you know, you're free to go, the dogs would just cower in the back of the cage. And Dr. John Medina says, um, he says the most awful thing about that was you could see that their brains were just frozen. They couldn't learn anymore. They were so hurt and terrified and, and traumatized. So we have to be very, very careful. We don't ever do that with our children or our teenagers or our 20 somethings because their brains, as you know, are very much under development and they really need us adults to create uh, healthy environments. That is the, that is the real responsibility and the real it's the most important thing that adults can do for children and, and teenagers and 20 somethings is create a healthy environment for learning, never let them get traumatized. And if they do instantly get in there and start the healing process because brains, Oh, sky is limit. Sky, the sky is the limit with brains, all brains. They just can do remarkable things. And we, we're the ones that can, can enhance that. So again, this this first part of our sort of two parter is is focused on what happens in the brain, and I think what you've just said there is is the perfect part. We need healthy environments. So let's talk about phrases or old school behaviours which create the unhealthy environments. So we all know about the obvious negative wording and negative tones, but what about lesser aggressive or passive aggressive communication like somebody shouting at you calm down with a bright red face or someone showing you how to do something saying come on it's easy without looking at it from the perspective of the person that you're trying to teach or even worse I've showed you how to do it why can't you do it what does that do to the brain and and how damaging can that be um those are such fantastic examples really so let's take a look at the person yelling calm down with the red face at a child so adults we we make this mistake where we think that you know do as I say and not as I do so that that's a phrase that you know I learned growing up where my parents would kind of laugh at themselves and say oh look at us you know we're telling you to do something that we're failing to do. So one of my personal things that drives me crazy is when I hear adults telling children to be upstanders and if they see any bullying to go tell the teacher or whatever. It's like yeah, kids are smart and they know there's repercussions for speaking up. Adults can't do it. They don't have the courage. They know there's repercussions for speaking up and so they don't. So we we don't have we don't have a whistleblower society where adults are upstanders. So why would we tell children to do something that we can't do? All we can do if we want to create a truly healthy environment for our children is to be role models. If you want a child to calm down, then you have to role model calmness. If you want a child to believe in themselves, you have to role model believing in them. And one of the things that I love that you said there was, you're talking about an adult projecting onto a child saying something like, why can't you do it? I showed you, why can't, it's easy. And, and really what you're identifying there is lack of empathy. And a lack of empathy is really unhealthy for your own brain. And if, if you have a lack of empathy and you find yourself very judgmental, 
always projecting onto people issues that you might suffer from um, those kind, you know, an impulse to put people down or worst of all, an impulse to shame, shaming a child, shaming an adult puts them in the out group. It means that they don't have a right to be understood and they don't belong to the community. So, you know, even if you look at the phrase, you know, and, and you hear this in parenting a lot, the idea that if you do X, Y, and Z, there's going to be consequences. It's like consequences. Are you, are you threatening the child and saying, if you try this out, cause you're just learning, cause you don't know anything. I'm, I'm going to punish you for it. And I'm warning you, threatening you that you're going to be punished. It's like, that whole system is really brain uh, ignorant. The brain learns by making mistakes. Our children are brand new on the planet. They don't know anything. The only way they can learn is by making mistakes. So we want to celebrate them. We want to say, hey, I noticed that you made the choice to do X. How did it work out for you? You refused to wear your coat out in the freezing cold. How did that work out for you? You're really cold right now, right? Well, Gosh, you really learned a super important lesson. I loved watching you learn that. I've got your coat for you here. Do you want to put it on? You know, versus the parenting model where you say, you know, if you go out without your coat on and into the freezing cold, well, you're going to learn a really terrible lesson and I'm not going to help you. It's like, really? So I think what we want to do, another example of this is, you know, we punish a child with time out. The child is learning self-regulation. If they could self-regulate a two-year-old and not have a temper tantrum, if, if they could self-regulate at five and not snatch a toy back from another child or pinch a child or do some kind of like unregulated thing, it's not by choice. Children don't really make choices until they get to be 25. When a child is 25 and, and they're a young adult, that's when their brain is mature. That's when they can be expected to truly operate like a human adult, 25. Up until that time, we have to be the adults, us older people, for them. That's how we create a healthy environment. We constantly role model things like self-regulation, empathy, calmness. And if we make mistakes, we, we say, I'm imperfect. I lost my temper. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I said that. I'm going to try harder. You know, it's none of us are perfect. Even us old people aren't perfect, but we can certainly make great effort. No matter what our background is, no matter how we were raised, we have neuroplasticity. We can change our brains. If you want a calm brain and Johnny, you and I've been laughing about how, you know, we have terrible tempers and we can go from zero to 60 and, oh, it's just the worst thing. And, um, I mean, that's certainly something I work on. And so what do we do? We practice calmness. We practice mindfulness. We drink our peppermint tea and we get ourselves regulated. I mean, that's how we create healthy environments for brains. Yeah, I think the, the only thing I'd add to that phenomenal answer there is the, the initiation of fight, flight, freeze when you do react to that, whether it's a child, whether it's a youth, an adult, just pushing into that fight, fly, freeze zone removes that opportunity for calm or the attempt to return to calm. And it makes it really, really hard to recognize it too, because then you have to have time to, to slow down, to, to bring it in. So I'd like to maybe unpick reasons for these old school behaviors and phrases coming along. Things that come to mind for me would 
would be smacking kids, um, bullying parenting, bullying educating. I know people in my parents' generation got the belt and so many other things at school that would cause real trauma, not just internally, but then the peer group that would come along with it. And I'd like to share just a little story I shared about um, my dad at his school. They had the mug stick that would be covered in chalk and the child would be hit with the mug stick and that would then imprint that for the rest of the day. So are things like these examples, reasons for these old school behaviours still being sort of forefront in the world at the moment? Yeah, I mean, especially considering um, the last deeply disturbing and terrifying events in the world. Um, the research in the neuroscientific labs is very, very clear. It's extensive, it's replicated. It's been around for at least 20 years. Hitting a child um, is counterproductive. It causes the child, uh, again, to feel shame as you're describing with your father. So. It shames the child and makes them feel like they are in the out group, that they don't belong, which is one of the most terrifying things you can do to the brain. So going back to your discussion around passive aggressive behaviors, telling a child that they, they have a time out, they don't belong to the group, they're, they have to stand outside the classroom, they have to go to their room, these sorts of things. We have to change our language around it and say to children, hey, you're acting in a really disruptive, unregulated way. I can see you. I can see you're, you're activated, like something's going on for you. Not sure what it is, but I'm here with you. And let's do a time in. Do you want to choose maybe I can't help you right now because I'm busy doing something as a parent or I can't help you right now because I'm a teacher and I've got 30 kids in the class. Can you choose a friend, a partner? And can you guys go to the corner or into a quiet space and have some time in together? Because I can see you need to... You, your sympathetic system, your freeze, your fight, your flight, it's activated. And the best way to calm down your body and your brain, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your cortisol levels, your adrenaline, the best way to calm you down is for you to have some time in, some deep breathing, some mindfulness, being safe with a friend, or because I can't be there with you right now, but when I can, I will. I'm, I'm going I'm to hold you. I'm going to be with you in that space especially as the parent, harder for the teacher as all these other kids. Um, so, I mean, the passive aggressive pushing of the child into the out group, you know, time out, that kind of thing, or that's that sort of shaming break in trust um, isolation is very, very hard on the brain. Same thing. If you hit them, what you do when you hit a child is you cause the part of the brain, the self-regulation mechanism in the brain um, to be completely traumatized. So if you want to see improved behavior, if you want the child to listen to you and trust you and learn from you, the worst thing you can do is break that trust by hurting their body. So one of the most powerful examples I've read, and as you know, I write about this in my book that's coming out in April, um, is I, I say to groups, so if I'm talking to parents or coaches or teachers, I say to them, here's two examples. You've got two teenagers. They take a five-year-old, a kindergartner, and they they grab a stick and they they two of the teenagers holds him down, and the third teenager hits him 
so many times he can't walk. Is that bullying? Raise your hand if that's bullying. 300 hands go up. I'm like, yeah, we, we've got an epidemic of bullying with our kids, right? Yeah, 300 hands go up. Then I say to them, okay, how does that change if we had two teachers holding down a 14-year-old and a third teacher hitting him so many times that he had to go to the hospital and he couldn't walk? Is that bullying? Oh, just a second. Is that discipline? Is that motivation? Uh, are those consequences? How come we're changing the language? Isn't the behavior of the children, I mean, shouldn't we hold them to a less high standard than our adults? How are adults, isn't that unregulated behavior on the part of adults? Isn't that bullying? Isn't that abuse? Isn't it cruel and unusual what they did to that child? Well, that is the precedence setting case in the United States of America. In 1976, that happened. And the judge ruled there is a law where you are not allowed as prison guards to do that to an inmate. That law does not apply to children. That behavior is not cruel and unusual. And in 19 states in the United States of America, you are allowed to hit a child as an educator with a stick. It's called a paddle. So to my mind, if we want to live in a world that is peaceful, that is mentally healthy, that is non-aggressive, that's regulated, that's civil, that is empathic, then we need to stop treating children that way. Because the more we treat children that way, the more they're going to grow up to be unregulated, mentally ill, unhealthy, self-medicating, not fulfill their potential, etc. Yeah, and it... I don't know, people might be thinking when they're listening, you know, why why are we going down this line? And the reason I want to go down this line is the next question, because people that have been through this process, through schooling or parenting or whatever it is, they are now the parents of grandchildren or the mentors of teachers, someone of my age at 33. And it's not that these people are directing these behaviours onto it. It's that people that suffered this can be bullying themselves in their mind because of the trauma caused. So just to kind of wrap up this first part, could you give us just a bit of information on, you know, the bullied mind and how you can bully yourself? Well, uh, yeah, it's a really important question. So what happens is when we're children, we normalize whatever's happening to us. So if our parents hit us, we normalize that. If our teachers hit us and it's part of the school system, we normalize it. If we're, if we are passively, aggressively shamed or put down, or we just normalize it. We think that adults are trustworthy beings who have our best interests at heart. It's hammered into us from day one. We need to respect the adults and obey them. This is, this is really not going to fulfill the potential of, of our brains. Um, so I think becoming an an adult on the journey, when you, when you have a mature brain at 25 and your prefrontal cortex is completely mature, like an adult's brain, and it's integrated into the rest of your brain, um, you, have the, you have the amazing opportunity to say, who do I want to be? And the beautiful thing is we have neuroplasticity. The neuroscientists now know the leader in this field is Dr. Michael Merzenich. Uh, I highly recommend his book, Softwired. If you want to have a healthy brain, if you, want to, if you want to be the most mindful coach, or you want to have the most talented players, or you want to have a fabulous relationship with your teenagers, 
or you want to become a learner for life, or you want to get super fit and you're not, you can do all those things. If you want to be someone who doesn't hit other people in an unregulated way, you can become that person. Now, the key thing is, as you and I've talked about, Johnny, it's not a quick fix. It's hard work. If you want to get your body in shape and you've been sitting on the couch watching TV, it's going to be hard work. You got to start slow. You've got to make, you make lots of mistakes. Some days you quit and you don't fulfill what you wanted to do. Um, it takes easily six months to a year before you start to actually see yourself change and see your brain change so that rather than watching TV, you actually want to go running or you want to go play football or whatever it is. Your brain changes. And if you were looking at your brain on a brain scan, you could see those changes. The brain would totally change. That's like if you learned the violin over the, over the course of the next year to two years, the area in your brain for the left hand would be totally changed because you're constantly working your left hand in ways that you might not be if you're not playing the violin. So, I mean, this is, this is the exciting, inspiring, like world-changing aspect of neuroplasticity. So in the school system, you know, you and I talked about putting kids into categories and saying, oh, you're this and you're that. No, no teacher and no coach and no parent can tell you anything about, all they can say is, here's my snapshot of where you are right now. And I'm excited to see what you do with that. Because you, all kids need to learn, all athletes need to learn that if you have a growth mindset, which means you associate um, achievement with really hard work in whatever it is you want to do, you want to be the best uh, goal scorer, you want to be the best passer, you want to be the best defenseman, you have to work at it. And if you understand that every time you work at it and every time you make a mistake and every time you fail, every time you get a setback where they get past you and you didn't defend the goal, just an opportunity. It's an opportunity to work harder. It's an opportunity to tweak what you're doing. Opportunity to find a talent whisperer, whisperer which is um, the empathic coach. It, it's well-documented in research. The more empathy coaches have, the more they don't yell at you or put you down or tell you you're the best player or say you're going to be the, that you're going to make this team or that team. That's all, that's not useful for athletes. If you want talent to be grown in your athletes, then what you want to do is be paying close attention to each individual athlete and noticing little tweaks. What do they need to correct? How are they holding their foot? You've noticed that they get thrown off or distracted when X happens. You, you see that they lose their temper and get upset and they can't be mindful and stay in the game. They don't have flow. Whatever it is, that is the talent whisperer. And all of us, no matter what it is we're doing, whether it's sports or academics, those are the people you want to find because they are the ones that are going to fulfill your potential. So what we've talked about here is heavy stuff, but it's also new stuff. So, so I'm going to end this sort of first part on what effects on the brain just here. But I want to just finish kind of with a little conclusion on what you've said. And just from that personal coach's point of view, you know, I think you need to give personal stories and personal examples to create connections to people that listen and people that you talk to. So, so when I'm coaching, I ensure that I use stories from my past where I failed that I wish that I'd done it a different way. I wish I'd gone right instead of left. I'll show frailty and fear and worry 
And I, I eventually build to this statement of don't be me. Like, don't be me. Don't make the mistakes I made. So I'm hoping for everybody listening that, that this sort of episode has moved towards that. And uh, Jen, I'd like to thank you for coming on for this part. And we'll probably move on to part two quite soon. Thanks for having me.